0: Well, good morning. Like Richard said, my name's Michael, if I've never met you before. Uh, I have the privilege of being one of the pastors. At Veritas, uh, get to oversee our staff and ministries, and so it is always, always a joy uh, for me to be with you guys. You probably aren't going to think it's a joy after you hear what I'm going to talk about this morning, though. All right, uh, we're going to talk about God destroying the earth and tormenting people that don't believe Him this morning. All right, so some of you are like, "Oh, this is the kind of church you are." All right, just hang on beyond this week; it gets better. Actually, just hang on to the end of the sermon; I promise it gets better. Um, so, we're going to talk about. Um, that kind of hard stuff this morning, all right? We're going to talk about um, kind of how the, how the world as we know it comes to an end. Where do we fall in that? And then why does God pour out his wrath? And so when you think about God's wrath, you know, when you look in this and you, we're about to see in Revelation 15 and 16, man, this is hard. This is heavy stuff. Um. But the most upsetting thing may not be in this passage that like God's pouring out his wrath. One of the most upsetting things could be for you the fact that in the midst of him pouring out his wrath, there are angels and there are Christians worshiping at the same time. It's like Why would a Christian be inspired to worship a God who incites wrath? Maybe you've kind of wrestled with that even in your own heart and life. You look back at the Old Testament and God like wipes out nations just like that. Super fast. God wipes out nations. You're like, how can Christians how can they worship a God who just like seems like is like a mass murderer. Commits genocide against whole nations. Like how in the world do Christians worship that kind of God? How do we sit here and sing songs to that kind of God? So, this morning, question for all of us to consider is like how is it possible for you why is it possible for you to worship a god of wrath that's what we're going to talk about all right everybody buckled up ready to go here some of you're like please get me out of here immediately (laughs) right so all right if you got a bible turn with me to revelation chapter 15 um a lot of churches may not preach um through these parts of Revelation, because it would just be easier, all right? As when I saw my name on the teaching schedule for this passage, I was like, I mean, anybody want to trade? This would be great if we could trade on this one, right? And so uh, you get to these passages. Some churches, you know, they may not want to address this, because it's not very attractive to get people into your church to talk like this. It's not very popular in our culture, Um, but the way we preach here, we're not better than anybody else. We just preach through books of the Bible, and as topics come up in the scriptures we're going to address them all right we're not going to skip over the hard passages so that's where we're going to be at this morning um let me remind you if you've just you're just kind of joining in this series in revelation maybe today's your first time welcome all right welcome to Toss. we talk about wrath um so um, in Revelation, what you've got to know is that this Apostle John, he's been given this vision of the end and how things are going to end, how things are going to come about, and the end's going to come about. He's given this vision, and he's supposed to write this vision down because it's meant to be a blessing to the church, all right? So he's got this vision that he's seeing of how things are going to end, and it's meant to be a blessing and an encouragement to churches in that time period and even our churches today. So how does talking about all this crazy stuff, these visions that John is seeing, lots of imagery, lots of symbolism, how is it meant to be a blessing? Well, for those original churches, they were in the midst of tremendous persecution. Tremendous persecution. Their, their lives were on the line because of their faith in Christ. And so as they're going through this, they're like, this is too hard. This is awful. What we're having to go through, what our family members and friends are having to go through, this is really difficult. And God goes, let me show you how it ends. To give you some encouragement to endure, to not give up, to not compromise. Why should you keep moving forward and not quit in this life? Because God's got you taken care of. And I'm going to give you a picture of the end so that you know that, all right? So how does all this begin? Um, Revelation 15, we're going to look at verses 5, and then we'll go through 16.1 to start. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. All right. So some of you are already confused. All right. So there's seven angels. And they each have seven plagues. Not a good thing, right? We know a plague that is not a good thing. So they they have these plagues, and what they're going to be given, they're going to be given some bowls, and these bowls are full of the wrath of God. And this is remember, this is a picture of what John is seeing. It's not the actual thing that's going to happen, but it's a picture of those angels given seven bowls of the wrath of God, and God's going to call out and say, "I want you to pour these bowls out on those people who don't believe me." All right, now. This is the introduction to the seven bowl judgments. Now, if you remember, if you've been with us in this series, there's been two other sets of major judgments, all right? There's been the seal judgments, not like the animal to seal, all right? So we're talking a scroll with seals on the scroll. And if you remember, there was only one person that could open the scroll. Nobody else could. There was no hope without this one person being able to open the scroll. And who was it? Jesus, there you go. Good church answer, right? Jesus, the Lamb was the one that could open the scroll, and as those that those seals on the scroll are peeled off one at a time, his judgment is poured out. And what we see in those initial judgments in those seals are how does the church go through this whole thing as his judgments are poured out? How does the suffering of the church? How is it going to continue? How are we going to be able to walk through that? While we suffer in the midst of all this hard stuff. And we're talking about here most likely from Christ's uh, resurrection to Christ's return. All this is occurring. So all this is being poured out. The church is going to have to suffer through it. Now the way we've talked about this. Or the illustration I gave last time I was here. Were camera angles at a football game. Right? So you've got all these different, uh, you know dozens of camera angles at a football game for those sealed judgments what you what you can pretend is that it's the camera angle focused in on our sideline those who believe in Jesus all right is zoomed in and it's like man this is hard we're worn out we might want to quit we might want to give up we might want to compromise but keep going Don't stop. God is sovereign over the suffering. So those are the seal judgments. Then you get to the second set of judgments called the trumpet judgments. But we're getting this. It's the same judgments. We're just getting a new perspective, a new angle of it in Revelation. So you go through the seals and you're like, oh, I think we're done with all this judgment. And God goes, no, I want to show you a different perspective of it. All right. So you get to these trumpet judgments where God's pouring out his wrath and he's pouring it out on unrighteousness. And if you recall in Revelation 8 and 9, what happens is he only pours his wrath out in thirds. Remember this? Only a third of the earth was affected. Only a third of the sea was affected. And that was because he was restraining his judgment and showing us how merciful he is. Because he deserved to pour it all out. That's what he should have done if it was up to us, right? But it's not up to us. He's going, I'm going to show you mercy. So you get a different perspective. And in those trumpet judgments, you're not, now, you're not only looking at the sideline of our sideline, but now a camera angle zoomed in on the opposition sidelines. And we thought it was really bad over here, but for them, oh, it's way, way worse. It's awful what's coming for those who don't profess faith in Christ, those who aren't marked by a love for God, marked by the gospel. So, this is a little background. Some of you are already lost. Still judgments, trumpet judgments. Today we're getting into the third set, but it's the same same judgment, all right? We're just getting another angle here. And the angle that we're going to get today is not from looking into how the church is suffering or looking into just how the unbeliever is suffering, but today we're going to kind of get the blimp perspective, God's perspective in all this, okay? So how do I know that's where it begins? Let's look back at verse 5. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness, or tabernacle of witness, which some of your Bibles may say, in heaven was open, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. So where is this vision beginning for John here? Out of the sanctuary of the tent or tabernacle of witness, Now, some of you may be familiar with the Exodus, all right? So much of Revelation is coming from the Exodus. In the Exodus, you had the Israelites were in Egyptian slavery, captivity for hundreds of years, right? And then God says, I'm going to bring you out of that. As he's going to bring them out of that, what's going to happen... Is They're going to wander in the wilderness for a long time right? because of their disobedience. But he said, you're still going to worship me even as you're wandering around. You don't own any of this land. You're going to go from place to place and place. And what you're going to do as you go through this, you're going to set up a tabernacle. It's kind of a precursor to the permanent temple. You're going to set up this tabernacle. And when you set up this tabernacle, this is what's going to happen. My manifest presence is going to show up there and you're going to worship me. Now in the middle of that, there's going to be a sanctuary, an inner place, and that's where my manifest presence is going to dwell. God dwells everywhere. God is everywhere. He's ever-present. He's omnipresent, right? But he's going to manifest that presence in this really small place in the middle of the tabernacle, and that's what's opening up here in the midst of the sanctuary of the tent or tabernacle of witness, in heaven was open. So we're getting this perspective from the holiest spot. From the most glorious spot is where these judgments are coming from, all right? Now, let's learn a little bit more about the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, this is some of the original plans for the sanctuary, all right? Exodus 25, we got that one? There we go, all right. It says, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and of all its furniture, so shall I make it. So who is dwelling in the tabernacle? God. God is dwelling there. So the, this is the perspective from God is where this wrath is coming from, all right? Now, in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35, it says this. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So you have this sanctuary, this holy place, and then it's filled with smoke. Because in verse 8 in Revelation 15 it says, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. What we need to know is this is a place where God is dwelling, this is where these judgments are coming from, and it's coming from a glorious, holy place. Multiple times throughout the scriptures, when smoke fills a place where God is, is to say, hey, you can't be in my presence. Moses couldn't be in the presence. Even these heavenly, angelic, kind of priestly beings couldn't be in the presence of God here. Nobody could enter. That's how different and distinct God is. We're gonna hit on that a lot this morning, but that's where we're gonna be, so... All this is coming from a glorious, kind of flawless place where it's too awesome for other people to be. And so these seven angels are given these seven golden bowls full of wrath. Now, why why are they given seven golden bowls full of wrath? If you remember in Revelation chapter 6, you have the lambs being worshipped at the altar. And under the altar, the people that were worshipping him were the martyred saints. The ones that had lost their lives because of their faith. So they're worshiping. And what are they praying for? You may remember, they're praying for, God, when are you going to show your vengeance? Please, God, like we just lost our lives. When are you going to show your power against our opposition? And God goes, I got this. I got you. I got you. And this is what's happening with these bowls of wrath. He's, gonna pour, he's answering his people's prayers he listens. He hears when his people his people pray, and so he's answering those prayers. And this image of a cup or a bowl being poured out comes from the prophet Isaiah. And we're not going to read about it, but the image is the bowl or the cup holds the anger or the wrath of God. So, in these bold judgments that we're about to read about, is the anger and the wrath of God being poured out? Now, there's two big things that we're already learning from the beginning of this. Okay, first thing is that God's wrath targets unrighteous people and those who persecute him. God's wrath has a specific target. He's not just having an angry 2-year-old outburst and like throwing a fit and like ah, I'm just going to throw my my anger on anybody and everybody. It's very specifically targeted to unrighteous people and those who persecute God's people here. So what I want to do is I want to help us get some clarity on the wrath of God outside of Revelation here so that we understand it fully. So in John chapter 3, some of you may know John 3, 16, right? Some of you may know John 3, 17. I want us to read John 3, 18 and 19 and verse 36. So listen to this. It says, whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So, who does the wrath of God remain on? Those with no belief. No belief in Jesus. And it's going to play itself out and they're not going to obey and that's who the wrath of God is coming on. This is how Paul says it in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The whole idea here in Romans 1 is this. That in creation, generally, God reveals himself to people. You can look at a sunset, you can look at a sunrise, and you go, wow. Like, somebody had to create this, right? You look at, the, make it to the ocean, the beach, Sometimes somebody had to create this, right? So generally, we can look at creation and go, there's a creator, so there's some general revelation happening. Now, all of you are hitting, or sitting here this morning hearing preaching from the word of God, his specific revelation to us. So what he's saying is we take all that revelation about God, about Jesus that comes to us, and what do we do with it? We suppress it. We, like, push it down. No, I, you know, I know there's a God, but I just I don't want to really deal with it because I like what the world has to offer. I'm not going to go after the Lord even though I know he's kind of revealed himself I'm just going to push it down inside and what does the last part of Romans 1 there say so they are without excuse you don't have an excuse any longer you have been stacking up credits not good credits because of your sin because of my sin we stack up credits now if we put a lot of charges on a credit card we can't just go you know what they don't exist. I'm not going to look at my statement. They don't exist, right? Like, you, you, you have to, whether you look at the statement or not, they exist. Whether you want to, like, recognize the reality that your sin and your righteousness and all the credits that you're stacking up, whether you want to recognize it or not, you deserve the wrath of God. We all deserve the wrath of God. Now, there's good news coming. We all deserve the wrath of God, and we don't have an excuse any longer. You don't have an excuse. And then in Romans 2, 5, it says this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You are storing up wrath. That's you charging up credits. You don't have an excuse. God's revealed himself to you. Now you're storing up credits. You deserve the wrath of God. Here's the amazing thing about God. He's slow to anger. Slow to anger. You know when we all deserve death? The moment we were born. Because we were born into sin. That's what we deserve. But he has been slow to anger. Gracious and merciful. That's the God we serve. That's the God we sing to. So we can't miss that. So all this is going to, God's wrath and judgment is targeting the unrighteous. But what we need to know, it's starting with God. It's starting from a holy place. The voice comes from the temple. A holy, glorious God summoning judgment. The problem is, is that our starting point, when we think of the wrath and judgment of God, is not God. Our starting point are people we love more than the God we love. So we think like, how could God do this to my family? I mean, I know they're not great, but surely he's not going to pour out all his wrath on on those people, on my people, right? And we start with the people we love. And so when we start with the people we love, we go, oh yeah, that doesn't make sense. God wouldn't do that. Why would God do that? In Matthew 22, we're not going to read it on the screen, but what Jesus does is this, person comes up to him one day and he tries to trick Jesus and he goes hey Jesus what's the most important law and there's like 400 and something laws what's the most important law thinking there's no way Jesus can narrow this down to one thing but Jesus kind of references Deuteronomy 6 and he goes hey the most important one the highest priority is this love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and he says and the second one's like it love your neighbor as yourself so, love God with everything. This is ultimate in life. Love God. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, those can't be separated from each other. If you love God, you have, it has to overflow in the way that you love people. They can't be separated, but let's be clear. There is absolutely a priority. Love God, love people. But what do we do? When we think of the wrath and the judgment of God, we flip those. And the priority comes on the people that we love. And you go, there's no way God could do that to those people because I love them. But what if we love God the most and we go, oh man, God is distinctly different. He's holy. He's glorious. Of course, He should do this. Because our love for God becomes ultimate. But when our love for God becomes second place, we start to go, God's not fair. I've got all these doubts about God, all this bitterness, all this anger. And we start to go, God, I don't know that you're doing a good job. I wouldn't do it that way. One pastor said, we do a terrible job at being God. No, God, I wouldn't do it that way. He goes, you're not like me. Let's be clear. You are not like me. So this is where all this judgment and wrath is beginning. If we don't start from the same place that God is starting from, we're going to see it very differently. So what does this wrath look like? Verses 2-4 through four and 8-11. through 11. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of the water, and they became blood. Then verse 8, The fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds." That's harsh, right? That's hard stuff to read. There's sores, there's sea turns to blood, there's death, there's fire, there's darkness, there's agony. And this lines up almost exactly with those trumpet judgments from Revelation 8 and 9. It lines up so closely to the Egyptian plagues that God poured out on the hardness of heart of the Egyptian people. And so this first bowl gets poured out and this symbolizes this spiritual and psychological torment poured out on those not marked by the gospel. Then God destroys the things of the sea, kind of the maritime economy at this point. And verse 4, it's like like fire. Does that mean people are getting burned up? I I don't think that's what's happening, but I think people are just being absolutely miserable at this point because of the judgment of God. And then the fifth one is the fact that It's poured out on Satan's throne. This is where those that rule over and they promote idolatry and they promote persecution, it says those people are going to be plunged into darkness. They're going to be separated from God, and the agony is going to be so bad that they want to gnaw their tongues. How many of you have ever bitten your tongue when you're eating? Like It's not a pleasant experience, but this is so bad that they're like, yeah, that's what we want to do. We want to just keep gnawing at our tongues. It's awful. It is painful, agonizing wrath. And it gets worse in verses 12 through 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming from out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the god God the Almighty. And then. John's going to give a quote from Jesus here. He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now some of you have been waiting for the battle of Armageddon. I'm probably going to disappoint you. All right, sorry. Uh, we'll talk about that more later. But here in this, this six bowl judgment, it says, It was poured out on the river Euphrates, and the river Euphrates represented Babylon. It was going to be poured out on Babylon. Now, if you remember last week from Babylon, God's judgment on Babylon, Babylon represented the anti-kingdom, a man-centered kingdom, all right, where there was an ungodly worldview promoting ungodly society as a good thing, and they were drinking it up. They're like, oh, we love this world and all it has to offer. Many of us have been there, right? Right? Yes, I love this about the world. This seems better than Jesus. This And the world has all this stuff to offer, and we just are drinking it up. And what happens when God pours out his judgment on the river Euphrates and Babylon here? It dries it up. All that stuff that we thought was going to satisfy, that we were just drinking up, God says, it's not going to last forever. I'm going to dry it up. You thought it was going to satisfy, but it's not going to satisfy. The water's going to be dried up. And when this happened, it kind of sets out three opponents to to Christians. The dragon and the beast. We covered that in chapters 12 and 13, so I'm not going to go back there. Then the false prophet. And this whole idea here is that deception is going to enter the church. And people are going to be deceived, even within churches, to worship idols. And these this prophet, there's going to be unclean spirits. He compares to frogs. I don't know what's so bad about frogs here, but he compares them to frogs and like demonic spirits behind this trying to deceive people within the church. And what's going to happen is it's going to assemble different kings, those people in political authorities of this ungodly man-centered kingdoms. These ones that are leading man-centered kingdoms and they're going to Kind of start to talk and come together like how can we destroy all these Christians we're going to get into this final war later in Revelation but in verse 15 this quote from Jesus comes from Matthew 24 and it's just saying hey I'm coming at some point Christ is going to return when I return like I'm going to come like a thief you're not going to know when I'm going to come so you need to be alert clothed Clothe yourself, not just like have clothes on, but clothe yourselves in righteousness. Be prepared, stay awake, stay alert, clothe yourself in righteousness as you wait for this day this approaching. I wish I had time to go into Colossians 3. We don't have time to talk about clothing yourself in righteousness, but read that this week, all right? That's how you stay awake as the wrath and judgment of God is coming, all right? So then you get into verse 16, this battle of Armageddon, all right? So, the translation here is actually Har, which means hill, and Megiddo, a hill of Megiddo. We think this grand battle is often going to take place where all the whole world comes in one space. The problem is this is not a mountain big enough to hold everybody. It's like seventy feet tall. All right, we're talking like Mount Trashmore status here. All right, so it's not a big place. All right, it can't hold this plain of Megiddo. Cannot hold the whole world. I think what the, this picture that John is getting here is this symbol, symbolism of the whole world's defeat. The whole world is going to be defeated here. Wherever they're at, the whole world is going to be defeated when Christ returns. Christ is going to win. That is great news. And the people that oppose him aren't. And it it's not good news. In Israel, this mountain, this plain of Megiddo, Israel had won multiple battles over the course of its history here. And oftentimes they were like, okay, this is the last one. This is the last one. So when people, the original audience is hearing this, they're going, oh, I get it. That's where, like, the last battles, like, sure, at some point, God's going to end this thing. Like, we get what he's talking about here. Christ is going to return, and this all is going to end. So what are the different people's responses to all this wrath and judgment. In verses 9, 11, and 21, let's see how non believers, what's the unholy response? They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Verse 11, and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Verse 21, and great hellstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. So how did non-believers respond to this wrath? They go, oh yeah, let's repent. I I can't believe we're living this lifestyle. No. What do they do? They curse the name of God. They cursed God. They gave him no glory. They cursed him because of their pain, and they did not repent. I think they just got angry. They just got bitter, and they started blaming God. God, there's no way you can be a God of love to do this. God, you could have stopped this, and you didn't. How did the believers respond? And the angel, verse 5 through 7. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given the blood, them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar, those martyred saints, saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So, the angels and martyrs are not upset. They are not confused by the wrath of God. They are worshiping. They are worshiping. How? Are Christians just a group of like sadistic, callous, cold, barbaric people that would worship a God doing this kind of stuff? I think the key to answering that no is the way the angel responds. He says, Just are you. O Holy One. As we've looked through Revelation, we've looked at God's wrath from the perspective of His sovereignty. Like He's in control. He knows what's going on. We've looked at it from chapters eight and nine. We look at God's wrath from the perspective of God's mercy, that He's restraining it. Even last week we look at God's wrath from the perspective of His love. But in Revelation 1, 3, 4, 6, 9, 15, and 16. It talks about how holy God is. When I talk about holiness, I mean absolute moral purity that creates this distinction between who God is and who we are. Some of you remember the story in Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah gets this picture of God, a vision of God. And what is the vision that he gets? He sees God high and lifted up on his throne. and There's angels all around. And what is Isaiah's response? He falls on his face and he says, woe is me. And what does woe mean in Revelation? Judgment. Like, just give me judgment. I'm not worthy to be in your presence, God. That's how awesome and holy and glorious you are. I can't even be in your presence. And God just shows this incredible act of like redemption. He puts this like coal, burning coal, on his lips, and you're, you're, he goes, "I'm a man of unclean lips," and he redeems him. But the picture is when you see a holy, righteous God, you go, I, "That's all I deserve is judgment. That's all I sh- should get. Why don't I get that?" The holiness of God, guys, makes wrath appropriate. The holiness of God makes wrath appropriate, but we don't often view God this way. He's holy, he's set apart, he's like no other, but what do we do? We kind of edit him down. We kind of crop him down to fit our image. So that God's more relatable, more palatable, so that God thinks and acts like us. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my boyfriend. All those kind of crazy things. Like, no, he is God. He is holy. He is glorious. He is righteous. And we are not. We try to, like, manicure Jesus and God to fit into our image. Yes, we are made in his image. But let's be clear, church we are not like God. We're not. But when we start to look at God like us, we struggle with His wrath and His judgment. But when we see Him as holy, set apart, we go, of course. He has to punish sin. He has to punish unrighteousness. When we recognize the holiness of God, wrath makes sense. You could say it this way. A proper response to God's wrath is shaped by a proper perspective of God's holiness. A proper perspective of God's wrath is shaped by a proper perspective of God's holiness. Because we're not going to understand the wrath of God if we don't understand the holiness of God. But when we prioritize His holiness, wrath makes more sense and worship in the midst of that wrath makes more sense. What did the angels say right before it? Just are you, a holy one. Just the right thing for you to do, God, is for you to punish sin. You are holy. You have to punish unrighteousness, unholiness. And then in verses 17 through 19, it says Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. Take a dip, big, deep breath. The wrath of God's over. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake. These happen in the seals and the trumpets. So that's why we're seeing the same thing happen over and over. And such as there had never been since was only earth, so great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. At this point, God says, I'm pouring the seventh one out, and when the seventh one gets poured out, it's done. We don't have to deal with this anymore. I don't have to do this. I'm covering it. Church, what side of God's wrath are you on? Are you on the side of death? Or are you on the side of Jesus' death? My hope is that you would be on the side of Jesus' death. What do I mean by that? Remember the night before Jesus died? Kind of leading up here to Easter. You can think about these things, right? The night leading up to Jesus' death. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is feeling the weight of what's about to occur tomorrow. And he's, he's crying. He's sweating blood. It is so stressful. Why is it so stressful? Well, what is his prayer? God, please take this cup. Or bowl from me. You know what he's about to experience tomorrow when he's praying in the garden that night? He is about to experience the full wrath and judgment of God. Why? Was he a sinner that deserved it? No, because he took on our unrighteousness, our unholiness. That's how much Jesus loves you. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. So he's praying in the garden, please God, if if at all possible, take this cup of wrath that I'm about to experience tomorrow. Take it from me. And then what does he say in an incredible act of love? Not my will, but yours be done. This is not about me. Sure, if that's what I've got to do to save your people, I will gladly do it. That's Jesus. Jesus. A God, that's God, a God of wrath and a God of love. And then hanging on the cross, feeling the weight of a holy God's wrath, what does he cry out? It is finished. Same way here it is done, it's over. What side of God's wrath are you going to be on? One that leads to death or the one that led to Jesus' death? He took the weight of God's wrath for you. Believe it, church. Believe it. That's a God who loves you that is full of wrath because He is holy, because He is glorious. Guys, God is not like us. He is awesome. We are not He is glorious. We are not. He is majestic. We are not. He is wonderful. We are not. He is holy and we are not. We have to see the wrath and the judgment of God from that perspective. Because then it all makes sense. Oh yeah, sure. A holy God has to pour out His wrath. How do you worship Him? Because He's holy and He's not like us. And there's none like Him what do we do with this? Repent. We repent. And when we repent, it means we were walking in one direction to the ways of this world and towards sin. And we turn around and we walk this way and we worship a holy, righteous God. Repent before it's too late. At the end of verse 21, it says they curse God. All these hailstones start to fall down and they curse God. And it doesn't say they refuse to repent here. Because by the time the seventh bowl was poured out, it was too late. It is not too late for you today to repent. You can do it because God's gracious and merciful. And today can be the day of salvation for you. And I know me or Matthew or Jess or Richard, we would love to talk to you about. The day of salvation for you. So you turn away from God and Veritas Urbana, we worship. We're about to sing. And what I want you to do, I don't want you to sing because that's what we do after communion. That's what we do after a sermon. But we sing and we worship. And maybe you raise your hands. Why? Not to put on a show, not to show somebody that you can sing, but you worship because God is glorious. God is holy. God is awesome. God is wonderful. Not to impress somebody around you. Forget that. Like It's not important. He is different. That's why we worship. That's why you see people raising their hands in surrender to say, God, I don't deserve this. You are better. So when we sing, we take communion this morning. Guys, I want you to remember as you take communion, I want you to remember the fact that Jesus took the cup of wrath that you deserved that his blood was shed and that his body was given for the sake of your sin and my sin and when you take communion may it be different this morning simply because you remember how holy and righteous God is and then as we sing you praise him because of how amazing he is that's the kind of church we want to be amen let's pray God thank you. Father, we are so grateful for you. You are holy, God, you're awesome. Father, I'm sorry for when we we describe other things in this world those ways. God, you deserve to be worshiped. Father, I pray that today repentance would happen. And God, we know that your word says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. So just pour out your kindness today on people, helping them to realize the truth of the gospel, the truth of their sin. God, lift our eyes to you, and may you be pleased this morning. May you be pleased with our worship, because it's covered with the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, God